Welcome to the Wakeman Congregational Church Podcast. This is a special recording of the Bible Q&A with Pastor Jay that was recorded in front of a live audience. Questions had been emailed, phoned, and texted in before and during the event. This is part one of that event. Jay, could you go ahead and start us with prayer? Absolutely. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the ability to gather tonight, God, to... um, come together as Christians, Lord, to deal with things out of Scripture, out of life, God, that we might not have full understanding on, or God, we seek more understanding in. God, that you would just clearly uh, point all of us here, God, both uh, the people who are um, asking questions and the questions that we've had come in over the internet, text, etc., but Lord, as well uh, as those of us who are giving answers, God, that we would point to Christ, that we would seek Christ, that we would look for Christ, God, uh, from the Word of God, which is good. Lord, we thank you again for our ability to gather here, and we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. Lord, it's in your name we pray, in accordance with your will we ask. Amen. All right, let's get started. All right, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Good. I'm, I'm excited about this. We, excited we, always, about we this. always enjoy this. Yes, this is great. So, um, are you ready to get started? Let's do it. All right. So, first question. Boy, it feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> What is grace and what does it mean to me? It really uh, easily, when we look at the biblical concept of grace, grace in itself is unmerited favor. Uh, we look at our culture, and our culture would say uh, when good things happen to us, uh, usually we've earned it. We've done something to uh, gather that good that's come to us. But the biblical concept of grace is uh, exponentially different. Uh, it's 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 very different from an American concept of grace. So to explain it in two words, uh, and again, biblically, going back to just kind of a theological understanding, it would be unmerited favor, uh, that we've done nothing in any way whatsoever to earn uh, that grace of God, that favor of God in our lives. And now there's two kind of elements of grace. Uh, You know, we look at common grace, and what are some common graces? Uh, Things that none of us deserve, but we have. Uh, we have cool things in our tongue called taste buds uh, that help us to differentiate between things that are sweet uh, or salty or uh, I love coffee. Sometimes I like it with creamer and a Splenda. Sometimes I like it jet black and when you pour it, you can't even see through the stream. Uh, So it kind of depends, but those are all elements of common grace. Things like coffee, uh, things like the sun, the moon, the stars, all these things that are beautiful and wonderful that point to the creator God. um, Those in and of themselves are elements of common grace. That is different from a salvific grace or a grace in a covenant context. Uh, So that grace is imparted to the individual believer, a New Testament believer, or if we look back at the Old Testament, that would be a a member of God's Old Testament covenant community, uh, the Jews. So uh, again, different concepts there, but overarchingly God's unmerited favor. Uh, What does it mean to me? It means uh, that God is good. It helps us to pull ourselves away from looking at ourselves as being the agents of what's good or the the people who have earned good, and it takes away our soapbox. It takes away our ability to um, argue for ourselves and forces us to point our eyes to God. Wow, thank you for that. Um, I'll tell you one of the common graces that I really, really enjoy is, is hot water. I really like hot water. Hot water is amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I enjoy camping too, but when you got a hot shower, it's something. So, uh, next question. What does God's uh, commandment to love others as you love yourself mean? So, when we look at... um when we look at, at, at God's law, uh, so the first four, uh, for example, if I'm just going to break down God's general law, the Ten Commandments, first four commandments dealing with our relationship between uh, ourselves and God, or God and ourselves, uh, and the last six being representative of our relationship of ourselves to fellow man, fellow woman, etc. Uh, and so when Jesus is asked, I think it was, a, I can't remember if it was a scribe or a Pharisee in the New Testament, what's the greatest commandment? And so Jesus essentially sums up the first four in the Ten Commandments by saying, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then he said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, So loving my neighbor as myself is extending the the same uh, measure of love that I would have for myself. For example, um, I love hot water as well. And if I had the ability to, um, you know, go and help install fresh water 
in places like, let's say, in the jungle that are really hurting for good fresh water, and I have the ability to do that, I would love to go and do that. That would be loving my fellow man in a tangible way um, because I have graces uh, in our country such as I can flip my faucet on and I can have clean water. Uh, or I can flip the other faucet on, I can have really hot water. And that in itself, again, those, those kind of stem back to elements of common grace. Yeah. So loving our neighbor as ourselves, again, uh, seeing them as Christ would see them uh, apart from any type of covenantal relationship. Um, you know, so when we walk around, we shouldn't just look at people and say, you know, oh, well, that person's weird because they don't look like me or they don't come from the same place or they don't have the same skin color or we don't make the same amount of money. We should look at every single man, woman, and child on the planet as people who are made in the image of God. And they have immortal, everlasting souls. And so those souls ultimately will go to one of two places, either eternally uh, with God forever in heaven, or eternally apart from the goodness, the mercy, and the love of God, um, but forever eternally in the wrath of God in hell. And so that's why, that's why we should love other people as we love ourselves. Could you explain salvation and what it means for me? And I believe this is written in, in a third-person kind of view where they're asking specifically for themselves. Um, specifically salvation. Think about this for a second. Um, if you're trapped in the middle of the ocean, you have no way to signal uh, an aircraft, you have no way to signal a ship, you're drowning, you're blind, uh, you're bleeding, and you're surrounded by sharks. Now, if some aircraft just comes out of the middle of nowhere and you're dead and you're just laying there dead and it hovers over your position it drops down a pararescue swimmer and he comes over and he grabs you he throws the little whatever the weird little flotation device is around you <laughs> and he hoists you back up into the helicopter uh, you wouldn't go back uh, home after you come out of the hospital you wouldn't go to people and say guess what i did for myself i saved myself i cried out for salvation in the midst of the ocean you would say I was a dead man. I couldn't see anything. I was cut and bleeding. There were sharks in the water. I was halfway in between Japan and California, and this helicopter saw me. And they descended out of the sky and sent down a rescue swimmer to come and save me. I was saved. And so there's this passivity in salvation that uh, Americans are not comfortable with. They think, you know, if you listen to people's language, oh, I got saved, I did this, or I did that, or I made the decision for Christ, when in reality we see that the biblical account very clearly tells us, uh, without any shadow of a doubt, for by grace you have been saved through faith, semicolon, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Um, so again, that, that points back to God, 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 and not me, me, me. So what does salvation mean? That I am rescued from the wrath of God. A lot of people think that they're rescued from their sin, and in, in a sense, you are liberated from your bondage to sin. But here's the question. Is sin thrown in hell, or are sinners? The answer is sinners are thrown in hell. And so we're not being rescued from our sin as our sin is the element of God's wrath. God's wrath is the element of God's wrath. And so we've been liberated from that. We're supposed to choose God, and we can only choose God if he has moved on our behalf. John 3, Ezekiel 36, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we can go all over the place. So what does it mean to me that I'm saved from God? I'm saved from the wrath of God. That's John 3, 36. You believe in Jesus, uh, that's good. If you don't believe in Jesus, then the wrath of God abides on you. It remains on you. Okay, so uh, John has walked up to the microphone. You've got a, a question yeah, to come through? So we have a uh, texted-in question, and it says, uh, what version of the Bible is the most accurate and trustworthy? A lot of that you could get into some muddy water with that. Um, per, I'll, I'll speak from personal preference. Uh, as I look at the vast majority of translations out there, I prefer uh, a more formal translation, uh, a, a more um, kind of word for word translation. So I, I subscribe to the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, uh, the 95 edition. I think that's the most recent edition put out by the Lockman Foundation. Uh, so what do they do? They don't, uh, they go back to the original text. So the, 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 
the underlying uh, Hebrew and Aramaic uh, manuscripts from the Old Testament uh, and the Koine Greek in the New Testament. So uh, I think in terms of word-for-word accuracy, I don't think you can get much better than the New American Standard Version. Uh, I would second that with a slightly more readable, uh, yet very formal translation, the ESV, the English Standard Version. Um, there's another question that I looked at earlier. Um, it it kind of piggybacks off of this question, and uh, the question is, in regards to Bible translation, can you explain dynamic equivalence versus essentially literal? Yes, absolutely. So um, if we're going to translate something, uh, let's, let's say uh, out of the NASB, uh, almost a word for word, sometimes, uh, especially in the Old Testament with Hebrew, it gets a little choppy, even in English. And so they've gone back to the original text, they've looked at uh, the original words, and instead of kind of filling in gaps uh, with what we would call kind of a dynamic translation of trying to make those stitch together a little more seamlessly in English, they've tried to remain as uh, truthful to the original manuscripts in the, in the original languages as possible. So on kind of a sliding scale, uh, if you put the NASB, uh, the ESV, the New King James Version, or even the King James Version, uh, kind of on the far right-hand side of what would be considered a formal translation, then we would kind of go all the way to the other side uh, to a loose or a dynamic translation into things like the Message Bible. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of another good kind of equivalent for the message. Uh, The NIV kind of falls, uh, I would say, in the upper middle, uh, so a little more freedom uh, with translation translating phrases than the NASB would, um, but still uh, kind of closer to the formal side uh, than even in the middle of the road. But you have a bunch of different Bible translations that are all across the spectrum. And so here's here's my challenge for uh, people looking to buy a new Bible. Uh, First, uh, get get a Bible that you can read. If you can't read it, you can't understand it, and you don't know it, um, you're going to have trouble learning. However, um, you know, just like we see the principle in Hebrews, we don't always want to be on milk. We don't. We don't want to do that. We shouldn't do that. So as we grow in our biblical understanding, uh, it, again, my, my, personal, uh, my personal desire is that people would try and get as close uh, as they possibly can to the original text and the original language uh, in English without going into uh, actually reading from some of the manuscripts and getting really nerdy with uh, the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic. Well, I hope that answered that question because that was that was a lot, but there was uh, some good meat there. Okay. Last question on this sheet of paper. It says, "Why do I have to repent?" Because it's commanded. Um, that's one of the primary elements of gospel preaching in the New Testament. Uh, first words of John the Baptist, first words of Jesus, uh, essentially the closing of the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2 or 3 with Peter uh, as he addresses, I believe it's uh, 3,000 converts uh, in the temple uh, at the, uh, shortly after Pentecost. Um, repent, turn from the Greek metanoia. Uh, to literally change one's mind. And so this concept of changing our mind, it's, again, we have these American concepts and then we have biblical concepts. And I would say that one of the American concepts is, um, you know, if I change my mind, it's kind of like, well, you know, I drive a a black car right now, but man, I really like the the way that red car looks. So the next car I'm going to get is going to be a a red car. So I've changed my mind about that, that favorite color there. And that doesn't even come close to broaching what biblical repentance is. Um, Literally that, that your your mind is so utterly changed. And understand that in the Bible, the mind, uh, coupled with the heart, is kind of the, the centralized control unit for a human being. Uh, that they, they co-locate those together and so that you are so fundamentally and utterly changed that literally everything in your life follows suit. That it's not just I want a new car or a different color car or a different make car, but no, I've totally switched from wanting any type of car, now I want to fly a plane. That's kind of the, 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 if I could get close to, you know, a, a kind of a secular um, um, analogy, that would be the closest I could get to it, but literally an about face from your way of thinking, a turning from sin, biblically speaking, and a turning to Christ, a turning from wickedness and a turning to righteousness, which is a marked change. It's not a small change in any way. Thank you. All right. Sounds like the phones are ringing off the hook. <laughs> All right, so here's, here's a bunch of questions on this one. Oh, we'll go through Shoot. them. Hebrews, 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, what is the difference between one's soul and one's spirit? 
Uh, great question. Uh, soul and spirit. So uh, when we look at, um, again, the, the orthodox uh, Christian view of um, humanity, uh, we're dualistic in nature. We have a body, a physical body, we have a spiritual soul. Uh, when we look at any biblical concept, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it speaks uh, to soul and spirit. Uh, those are not two separate things. Uh, it would be almost the same of saying, okay, well, I've got um, uh, my tibia. This is my tibia, right, John? This front bone right here, this is my tibia. All right, so I've got a tibia here, right? But it's also a part of my skeleton. Okay, so kind of two words that describe the same thing. They're not two separate entities. They're used interchangeably in the Old Testament and interchangeably in the New Testament. Uh, so the, again, the, the Orthodox uh, Christian belief, and not the Eastern Orthodox, but just the true um, solid teaching of the church throughout history, all the way up through the Reformation, uh, into the uh, Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and, and what I would say is solid theology today, uh, we would adhere to dualism rather than trichotomy. And trichotomy would argue body, soul, and spirit. Um, but again, biblically, those are used interchangeably. Um, throughout the books of Matthew and Mark, why does Jesus continually tell those that he heals to tell no one? I'm trying to think of how to answer it with putting a spin on uh, someone like Benny Hinn or um, any one of the miracle healers. Um, what do people want when they go to a Benny Hinn show or they go to a miracle healing show, they want a miracle. They don't want Jesus. Uh, they don't want the gospel. They don't want the truth of the Bible. Uh, they want to see something spectacular. And so when Jesus came, um, while he did signs and wonders 100%, he performed miracles, uh, his job was not to come and be a magician. His job was not to come and do amazing things and gather this following based off of uh, tricks or of, of, of perceived miracles in any way. Um, his primary message was to come and save sinners, um, but also to teach and preach the Word of God, which he did effectively and wonderfully and beautifully throughout his ministry. So he wanted people who were more concerned about what he had to say and who he was than what he did externally. Uh, we've got a question from... Yes. Uh, we have two calling questions. The first one is to explain Matthew seven thirteen. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. Explain the difference between the narrow gate and the broad gate. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's two paths. Uh, if we look, um, one of the, the famous sayings of Jesus, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, that would indicate that there is another way. That would indicate that there's also the possibility of death. Uh, and that would indicate that there's darkness uh, or that there is uh, something apart from Christ that's not good. So I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Excuse me, uh, the opposite of a truth would be a lie. So when we look, uh, this, is, this is a pretty neat biblical principle. If there's a, a positive statement in the Bible or a declarative statement uh, where there's only um, really one contrast that you can have there, for example, if there's such a thing as light, what's the opposite of light? Darkness. If there's such a thing as life, what's the opposite of that? death. Uh, if there's such a thing as a truth, the opposite of that would be a lie. And so Jesus is essentially saying there's one way. There's, you know, the only way that you're going to get to the Father is but through me. And if I'm the only way, and someone comes to you and they offer another way, is that ultimately going to lead to the Father? And the answer is no. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, uh, Paul uh, to the church at Galatia, if anyone brings you a, a, a gospel counter to the one you have received, i.e. from us, the apostles, uh, if it doesn't jive with the teaching of Christ, he literally says they are to be accursed. And so he says that twice in just a couple sentences. He said, literally, uh, the, again, the strongest, the strongest language that Jesus, uh, or excuse me, that, that the Holy Spirit used through Paul, short of about cursing uh, in, in Greek, to, ex, to express uh, an extreme discontent and holy hatred of those who would abuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are to be accursed. Um, totally lost my train of thought. What was the question again? The, the, the narrow, narrow gate. Okay, narrow gate. Uh, narrow way. So, so again, we understand that if we're going to enter the path to life, it has to go through Christ. Uh, there's only one Christ. There are not many Christs. Uh, so that's one of the ways that Joel Osteen has actually tried to deceive a lot of people. Um, he'll say that I believe that uh, Jesus is the only way to God, but I believe there's many ways to Jesus. 
And you, say, you see very quickly how people distort the gospel of Jesus Christ and try and add in all these different pathways and all these different avenues by which you can be saved. But Jesus says, uh-uh, there's one way. It's me. And so we see that again, uh, you know, John 6, for example, no one can come to the Father but by me. No one can come to the Father unless he has been, or excuse me, no one uh, can come to me unless he's been drawn by my Father. And so there's this exclusivity of, of, of we can't pick and choose. We can't, I'll, I'll quote a, 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 one of my old pastors, you can't have Burger King theology. You can't have it your way. You can't pick and choose how you're going to navigate the path to heaven. There's one way. And so what do we wind up seeing? That those who do not follow Christ, and here's, here's a great litmus test for that, if you're not reading your Bible and you're not excited about the Word of God, you should question your faith. You should test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Uh, and, and we know, for example, uh, what is it, 1 John 5.13, I have written these things uh, so that you uh, may, those of you who believe in Jesus Christ may know that you have eternal life. We can hold ourselves against the Scripture to actually see if we're Christians. And again, how will we know unless we have failed the test? So test yourself to see in your, your, if you're in the faith so that you can make sure you're navigating uh, the, the narrow way uh, in the straight gate. Uh, the second question from the, tele the phone call in. Yes, the second question, which piggybacks off of that, is 2 Timothy 2.15, is what does it mean when it says to study to show thyself approved? Absolutely. So studying to show yourself uh, is, in, in some translations, a, a workman or a worker approved. Um, our lives should be indicative of what we proclaim to be true. Um, so, for example, I like to pick on John because uh, he's just—he's easy for me to pick on all the time. Uh, if if John, all right, if John is a vet and he's—he's he's a really good vet, but he doesn't know how to how to how to do basic surgery on a cat, I'm really quickly going to stop and question: Well, is this guy actually a vet? But if I look at John and I know that he's done probably multiple thousands of surgeries on cats, and, and I would assume that the vast majority of them have been highly successful, then, and, he, and I'm getting a thumbs up, all right, but, but because they're successful, I would say, okay, well, let me see, John's claiming to be a vet, he, you know, he's walking like a vet, he's talking like a vet, and the guy can do surgery well. He's a vet. Um, and if, if, if I am not proving by my life in the things that interest me that I'm a Christian, I'm not really showing myself as a workman approved because I can, I can talk the talk, but if I'm not walking the walk, if I'm not proving by my life, my actions, my inactions, my study, my desires that I'm a Christian or a true worker of the gospel, then frankly I'm to be accursed because I'm a liar. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a fraud. I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, I'm false. And so we have to make sure that our lives and our lives line up with Scripture. Um, this question here kind of piggybacks on one we were talking about earlier. I just looked down and saw that while you were answering that one. It says, how can we be certain that the Bible has been translated correctly so many times during the 2,000 years? And so who decided what books belong in the Bible and how can we trust what they did or, who they, or trust what they did? Great question. Um, so how can, we, how can we be sure that we have an accurate Bible? Uh, again, going back to the manuscripts, uh, the, uh, the vast majority of manuscripts, say for example the New Testament, uh, we can get literally our hands-on copies, at least fragments, if not complete copies, uh, of manuscripts that date back to within a hundred years of the happenings of those events. Uh, and so when we look back just historically, let's just take the New Testament for example, um, we know without a doubt uh, that the Bible, before things like our ability to take pictures, to record video, or to uh, record sound, uh, the Bible is the most historically attested book containing the most historically attested events in human history. There is no equal in any way whatsoever when we look back at the original manuscripts. Uh, so when we see things like uh, copies of the Gaelic Wars, uh, which everyone would argue um, happened historically, I think we're, we're looking at honestly less than 15, uh, 15 copies that were uh, written close to 500 years after 
the Gaelic Wars. Uh, yet with the New Testament, for example, we have, I believe, 20 to 30,000 partial, uh, uh, partial to full manuscripts of uh, books or various collections of books of the New Testament that we can date back to within about 100 years of those events actually happening. Uh, so historically, again, Jesus is also one of the most historically attested people in human history before things like, uh, what was it, the, the phonograph, uh, before things like uh, our ability to take pictures and record things digitally. Uh, Jesus was and still is uh, the most famous human being in history. Um, with the Old Testament, I would argue that just based off of our, um, our views of the, the New Testament, Jesus quotes directly from a ton of books in the Old Testament. Uh, interestingly enough, he actually also quotes out of the Septuagint, which is the Greek copy of the Hebrew Old Testament. So we know that Jesus himself didn't have a problem with translations of uh, the original manuscripts into different languages. Um, when we look at, uh, let's see, how, how can I know that, that we've got the right books? Uh, some of the criteria that the early church put on uh, books to include in the canon. Uh, apostolicity, for example. Who, who wrote it? Who's the guy who wrote it or claimed to, uh, claimed to have written this book? If it came from someone like uh, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, i.e. James, obviously we've got no, no doubt there. Uh, you know, uh, Matthew's account, uh, you know, Luke's account, uh, obviously he's going back and collecting all the evidence, but he's talking to the people who were actually there. Uh, Luke, not an apostle, but um, if you will, uh, an early historian for both uh, the account of Jesus's life and then the entire uh, genesis of the early church in the book of Acts. Um, think of Luke and Acts as part one and part two. Uh, same, same guy who basically got it up and off the ground, Luke. Um, Again, any way we look at it, uh, orthodoxy, for example, there's another test, litmus test, for why we have books in the Bible. Uh, are the things that are being taught in the New Testament with the books that we have, are they jiving with other New Testament books that we know 100% came from an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, one, of, one of his disciples during his earthly ministries? Uh, are they jiving with Old Testament principles? And if the answer is yes, then again, those are two more check marks that we can add to why we have the books that we have in the Bible. Down, 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 down. Hello, hello. Can you still hear me out there? It kind of sounds okay. like you're in a submarine. <laughs> so we'll, we'll so, try. And, we'll try and go with this adjusted volume level and see if that helps yeah. at all. So, you want to hit us up with another yes, question, okay. Jason? Okay. Well, we'll we'll get through this. Um, Romans four fourteen. It asks a question. Actually, it says Romans four fourteen question mark question mark question mark. Doesn't this contradict? Why? How can faith? ever be made void and the promise be nullified. Well, let me get let me get to Romans 4:14 before I before I answer that question so just so we can try and get some proper context. Um, and this is this is just a, a pastoral truth up here. There's times when I get shaken up or I get excited uh, and I'm about to preach or I'm about to teach something and I'll forget the order of the books of the Bible and so I'll look really foolish trying to flip around a bunch so it's nice when I can get there really quickly so that's that's not an uncommon problem even for pastors uh, so justification by faith uh, evidence in the Old Testament uh, Romans 4 14 for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Uh, ultimately, when we look uh, to, I think if you look in Galatians, um, we realize what's the whole purpose and intent of the law. The purpose and the intent of the law is to be a tutor to point us to Christ, to lead us to Christ, to show us Christ. And so we understand that uh, no one apart from Jesus Christ was justified under Mosaic law. And so there was this element of the fact that we had to have faith that there was some amount of righteousness that could either be credited to us in the Old Testament setting or imputed to us in the New Testament setting uh, in order for us to lay hold of the promises of God because we know that no one is justified by the law. Um, for example, uh, if I were to be judged by Mosaic law right now, I would, I would be in direct violation by the shirt that I'm wearing. Uh, it's made out of two different fabrics, and that in itself was a violation of one of the Mosaic laws. And so, again, as we look at the law and it points us to Christ, we realize that we're not justified by keeping the law because no one can do that. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. And so that's where the element of faith comes in. Uh, we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, for example, uh, with um, the Hall of Fame of Faith, uh, which has a bunch of uh, basically our superstars of the Old Testament who, um, who laid hold of the promises of God by faith. And by their faith, 
they were justified. Again, uh, a different concept of uh, the righteousness that they had because of that faith, again, in the Old Testament setting, uh, credited to their account when Jesus uh, was um, killed on the cross and satisfied the wrath of God for the forgiveness of sin. Now his righteousness to New Testament believers can be imputed, can be freely given. There's not a credit. We're not waiting for that to be fulfilled in the future. Uh, the first one is in Matthew 8, 28, what did Jesus mean when he said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead? While you're you looking that up real quick, 8, 8. The, uh, the Facebook stream just looked like it. What was that reference again, John? It was uh, Matthew 8, 28. Matthew 8, 28. Thank yeah. you. I've got a different verse. For Matthew eight twenty eight. Now this says, "What does what did Jesus mean when he said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead.'" So I know I, I can't remember the exact reference. Uh, I, that that's not Matthew eight twenty eight. That would be uh, somewhere else. Um, that being said, essentially, uh, you know, no one who reaches back, uh, you know and goes back to their old life, uh, tries to find things that are more important than following me, is going to follow me. So Jesus was an all-or-nothing guy. Uh, there were a lot of people who wanted to go back and wait until, um, for example, uh, their father died so that they could bury their father and then get the inheritance. And so what was Jesus ultimately calling to? Drop your life and follow me. Leave everything and follow me. And so he would have some people who were hesitant to follow him because guess what? Dad was about to die and they were about to inherit maybe the family business, the, the farm, the land. And so he's saying, let the dead, the spiritually dead, go and bury the physically dead. Follow me. Receive new life through me. You got one, Jason? Okay, yeah, I got plenty here. So actually, John's getting ready to go. Or John? Still working on technical difficulties, so I... We're, we're learning and we're growing. I don't know. Uh, we, we have another question. There is so much strife in the world with race, gender, and politics. Why shouldn't the church just concede to the culture somewhat and, and share a message of unity that the culture can accept? Great question. So why, uh, why in an age of... Um, Things like inequality, um, abortion, uh, social issues, gender issues, uh, world issues. Why should we not be more inclusive? Why should we not be more focused on those individual issues? Uh, here's why. Um, Jesus didn't do it. He didn't. He didn't do it once. Uh, they tried to draw him into the trap about a thousand times. I would say the closest they tried to get was, uh, was asking him whether, we, whether or not we should pay taxes to Caesar uh, or the Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. And the closest that he got to making any type of political statement was this. Uh, he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. His focus was not on social issues. And so when we look at our culture, for example, and then we look at Jesus's culture, uh, slavery was was rampant, and it was not even close to, uh, you know, when we look at Roman subjugation uh, and even some of the, just the terrible things that the Romans did to the Jews, uh, the persecution that they faced, the inequality based on their race or their skin color, uh, which would have been a lot different than uh, the vast majority of your Greco-Roman uh, citizens. Um, he didn't care about that. He wasn't concerned about that. Uh, he didn't find one thing that was sinful that he chased down. Um, so, for example, I've seen a lot of Christians fall into this trap. They become so focused on trying to defeat abortion, which we should be uh, in support of. Uh, we should be in support of of being counter to abortion. However, if that becomes our primary thrust and our primary focus, what are we not doing? We're not teaching and preaching the gospel. And so, if we become focused on one issue, even if it's sinful. All right? We're going to lose out on our ability to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, where there's salvation in Him. Um, through, through faith by grace. And, and so when we understand that our primary mission as Christians is to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified, everything else becomes secondary to the gospel message because that should be our focus. 
That's great. So, so that's why we're not as, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to get up and, and, and just constantly be about uh, trying to appease culture or follow the next cultural trend or uh, seek to uh, provide justice to anybody outside of uh, getting them right with God. Our focus should be on, um, on preaching and teaching the Gospels in order that sinners might be saved. Well, these are pretty good, so we might not be lightning. Okay, so we'll put these two together. So can you explain what uh, what rebuke means? To rebuke would be to uh, correct or train um, pretty sharply in the midst of uh, deficient or sinful actions. Uh, for example, if I see that my child's about to go and put their hand on a hot stove, I'm going to go over there and pop their hand. I'm going to say, no. Back away from the stove. Stop. You're going to burn yourself. You're going to hurt yourself. That's bad. And so while that might be in that time painful to the child, it's an immediate response to an action that could cause them harm. Or let's say they, they stole some cookies out of the cookie jar. Uh, they will be rebuked for their actions. Uh, kind of a, a word that's synonymous would be reproof. Um, to, to bring them into correct understanding of how things should be because they're at fault uh, in whatever that issue might be in itself. So this uh, second question uh, refers to that. Why does Jesus rebuke the Pharisees in Mark 7? In Mark 7. Um, I'd have to look there. I know in Matthew 7, he's also rebuking some Pharisees. Uh, but in, in, in a lot of his rebukes, if you look at it, Jesus was so focused on um, his father, so focused on correctly expositing the word, uh, that it really set the whole world upside down, specifically and especially the religious world. Uh, let's look at the Pharisees. So the religious leaders of the day, the people who would have been uh, perceived by your average Jew or Israelite as a super pious, uh, super holy, kind of float around on a holy cloud everywhere they go. Uh, they'd go into the markets and uh, make long prayers. They would let everybody know that they were fasting or they were uh, having a time of extended prayer. They wanted, uh, they wanted to look really holy. And so... Um, Say, for example, um, the seven woes against the Pharisees uh, and the scribes. Um, you know, woe to you, um, you know, scribes and Pharisees. You're like a, you're like a, a dish or a cup. Uh, outside you look clean, you look good, but inside you're full of rot and disgusting things. You're like a whitewashed tomb, right? And what's inside of a whitewashed tomb, though, it's beautiful on the outside dead men's bones. And so over and over and over again, he's trying to, to, to pull away this facade. And that's you know, one of the reasons why um, you know, I have no problem at all with, with pastors who wear suits and ties. So that's their prerogative. But if they believe that that is how uh, they main, maintain some sort of outward piety, uh, they're totally lost on, on, on who Jesus was, number one, because the guy had one set of clothes Right? And they weren't fancy. He was a son of a carpenter. He was a poor guy. He was essentially homeless uh, for his entire earthly ministry. Um, he would stay in various people's houses, but he owned literally nothing. Um, our, our, our focus on piety, on Christ-likeness, on holiness should be inward rather than it should be outward as manifested through our clothing. Caveat to that, as long as our clothing is morally upright. Um, so, you know, men that they're, uh, you know, not wearing profane uh, shirts. Women that they're making sure that they're being uh, modest in their attire. Um, you know, and, 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 and consider that for, for what it is. We could deep dive that topic, but the ultimate focus is not on outward piety. It's on inward conformity to the Word of God and Christlikeness. Right. I'll, I'll Look, just repeat what you're, gotcha. the quick question you're so here, asking. So here's, uh, here's the next question. This will be our test question. How could it be possible for thousands of people to hear Jesus by the lake or for millions of people to hear Moses in the wilderness when there were no microphones or loudspeakers that worked? That's a great question. So, so how uh, question is how uh, how was Jesus able to speak to thousands by a lake? Uh, how was Moses uh, able to speak to potentially millions of people uh, when he came off the mountain of Mount Sinai? Uh, I would argue for Jesus. I think probably uh, just the natural acoustics of what it's like to talk on water. Uh, if you've if you've ever been out on a boat on a still day, uh, you know you can hear somebody close to a quarter of a mile away having about a normal conversation because those sound waves just kind of really uh, easily skip off the water. 
so I would hope and pray that maybe it had something to do with just the simple acoustics uh, of being on a boat and projecting the voice forward over water to a group of people. Uh, that'd be, I think, just natural acoustics there were at play. Uh, as it pertained to Moses, uh, probably a couple arguments that I would make. Um, either it was supernatural, we don't know, the biblical account doesn't really say, uh, in, in pertaining to his voice. However, this is uh, something very interesting that the Israelites did say to him when he came off the mountain. They said, uh, we heard God speaking with you. It terrified us. And this is the J. John's translation version. Uh, we heard God speaking with you. It t utterly terrified us. Uh, why don't you just be the one who speaks to us? Because if God speaks to us, we'll die. And, and so uh, we know, too, his face was shining with the reflected glory of God. They asked him to put a veil on because it scared them, it terrified them. Uh, I think that acoustics could, again, had a lot to do with that. If he was up maybe a little bit, uh, you know, on an upslope and was able to project out over the crowd, I'm sure he would have been able to, thousands likely would have been able to hear him. And I'm sure that they would have had runners or people to, you know, basically do what we're doing here. You're, you're, you're asking me a question, and then I'm asking it back again so that other people can hear. Uh, you know, that's also a possibility. So we don't really know the answer to that. Uh, there's no biblically definitive answer, but, but those would be my, my best guesses. I, a person just texted me, this. she says, how can a lifelong atheist on their deathbed be assured of salvation if they wanted to trust Christ? That's a great question. Um, here's my answer to that, uh, and I'll, I'm going to tread thin water here. Um, thin ice, not thin water. This is a <laughs> Thin on thin ice it's here. Got a good uh, the cl close, to, close to the only thing that I could even possibly say would be a deathbed confession would be the thief on uh, one side of Jesus. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox would say it was the one on his right hand side. That's a whole another topic for a whole another time. Uh, but it's interesting if you look at the imagery of the Eastern Orthodox cross uh, on the footstool of the cross, uh, it's angled. And so what they're trying to do there with imagery is indicating that one of the thieves uh, went to hell uh, and the other thief uh, went to heaven with Christ Jesus. Then also the extra crossbar uh, above uh, on the very top of the cross was supposed to be representative of the um uh, the, the placard that Pilate said should be up there, Jesus, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Um, total aside, uh back to the question. What 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 did you just ask again? John, I'm sorry. I, short I, I, memory sometimes. Okay. Uh, so I think she's asking how could a lifelong atheist that okay, says I gotcha. they trust Christ on a deathbed actually trust Christ. How could a lifelong atheist uh, have faith in Christ Jesus right at the end of their lives? How could they have assurance of faith? Uh, I think deathbed confessions are very dangerous, to be perfectly honest. Uh, when you live your entire life, especially as an American, hearing the gospel message, and you reject it your entire life, what glory are you honestly giving to God? Uh, what glory are you going to give to God? Let's say, let's say you are legitimately saved on your deathbed. What glory are you bringing God with your life? What glory are you bringing God with your, your, your conversion? Am I saying that it's impossible? No, I'm not saying that. However, I know that there's no biblical precedent for it whatsoever. Again, the closest we can get is to the thief on the cross. Uh, but here's an argument that I would make that people should consider. Uh, there's a possibility that that was the first time that that thief heard the message of Jesus Christ. There's a possibility, because we know that he was in prison at that point. We don't know for how long. He might have heard of Jesus, but never heard uh, the message of salvation that Jesus had to offer. Uh, so again, uh, there is the possibility um, of that happening. However, we don't see that at all anywhere in the New Testament uh, after Jesus himself dies. And understanding uh, that that man did not uh, uh, receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that New Testament believers did because Jesus said, I must go in order that another will come, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who we know arrived on the day of Pentecost. So he did not receive the Spirit in the same manner uh, that New Testament believers did. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the caveat there. I would say, uh, repent of your sins and believe the gospel now. Um, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait until you're 70, 80, 90, etc. Dangerous ground. Can you spell caveat? C-A-V-E-A-T. <laughs> oh, this, I like this question. So it says, lots of my friends say that they know Jesus and God, even though they never come to church. Most say that they believe because they're inspired watching the birth of a lamb or a calf. What is the best way to convince them that there's so much more to being a Christian? The Bible. The Bible. Um, when people are 
very focused on just things that transpire around them in the world, and they don't give a hoot about the Bible, that's a great mirror for their soul. That's a great mirror for their heart as it pertains to the things of God. Um, you know, when, when people are very excited about, uh, again, elements of common grace, seeing things like new life with a, with a cow giving birth, that's a great thing. That should point you to God. And if it stops there, you're lost, to be perfectly honest. Biblically, you're lost. Why? Because uh, if our lives are not um, constantly being conformed to the image of Christ, we don't have him. We don't have the Holy Spirit. We're spiritually dead, though we might know many truths about God. And again, um, you know, we look at, uh, for example, uh, in Hebrews, uh, I believe it's chapter 4, uh, we shouldn't forsake the assembling of Christians. We shouldn't not come to church. I think there's a lot of country music songs out there, you know, the, what is it, the outsider, nature's my church, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, no, it's not. The church is, is not a building. Uh, the church is, is not the outside air or a grassy meadow or a field full of flowers. The church is the corporate body of believers in Jesus Christ. In Greek, the ecclesia, which means the called out ones, those who are part of the assembly of God. And so we understand then it's not nature. It is those who have been transformed by the image of Christ, who are the bride of Christ, who are eagerly awaiting his, his return so that he can consummate the marriage between himself and the church that he can bring us to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, that we can drink the good wine with him in heaven, as Isaiah says, uh, that he will, he will bring out a mighty feast and we will be happy to see him face to face. Um, that is why knowing your Bible, fellowshipping with other Christians in a local church is a, is a vital necessity. How do we know that hell is real and not some weird made-up scare tactic? Uh, because it's in the Bible. Um, period. I'll just punt back to the Bible. Uh, Jesus preached about hell more than anybody. Um, he explained its terrors more than anybody, uh, combined, actually. Um, you know, a lot of our uh, doctrine of uh, how we understand what hell is is literally off of the red letter words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Uh, it is a very real place. Uh, he likens it to Gehenna, uh, which was a hill just outside of Jerusalem, which is, if we go back historically in the Old Testament, that's actually where uh, the Israelites, when they were uh, whoring after foreign gods, where they sacrificed their children to Molech. And so that place was so detestable to the Jews, they turned it into a, basically a garbage dump, and uh, it was per almost perpetually on fire. And so he likened uh, hell to Gehenna, this place of just utter filth that was constantly burning, uh, where the worm dies not, uh, where there's outer darkness, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, he's not trying to scare us at all with that. He's telling us the truth. And that's one of, that's one of the things that, that, that people often see. Well, you know, they just want to try and trick you, you know, out of the line going to, to hell in order that you might be in the line going to heaven. Well, if that's what you're in this for, I would argue that, that there's a good chance that you're not a Christian because our end state shouldn't just be getting to heaven. Our end state should be loving Christ Jesus, of being conformed to his image. It's not about what we get in the end. It's about who we can love here and now and forever, Christ Jesus, who is the eternal God. This one says, 2 Timothy 2.21, question mark. Give me a second. Okay. You wanna, you wanna and while you're up. thinking of that, what about Hebrews 7? Was Melchizedek human? Yes, he was human. I would argue that he was human, 100%. Because he was a, uh, a picture of Christ. Uh, again, they'll talk about the fact. Uh, 2 Timothy what? 2 Timothy 2.21. 2.21. Question mark. Okay. Um, going back to Melchizedek uh, while I was flipping there. Um, so the only three times we see Melchizedek would be uh, uh, Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews. Uh, we know he was the, um, uh, the king of Salem, uh, the king of peace. Uh, his name literally means, uh, I believe, uh, king of righteousness. Um, so he was an Old Testament picture of Christ Jesus. We know that Jesus uh, was the true prophet, priest, and king, that he fulfilled all these things, all these offices. And we see uh, Abraham give a tenth part of his spoils of war uh, to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And uh, that's where the, the essentially we, we started to get uh, the concept of a tithe as it kind of uh, evolves into uh, Old Testament Mosaic law. Um, again, the, the king and priest of Salem, uh, 
the Genesis account says he doesn't have uh, a beginning or an end. Uh, and so a lot of times people look at him and say, well, is that a theophany? Is that a picture of God himself physically manifesting himself in some way in the Old Testament? Or is it a Christophany, uh, a, a, a literal uh, manifestation of Christ Jesus, uh, which I would argue the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the Old Testament, leading the Israelites out of bondage, out of slavery, uh, into the promised land of God. That was a Christophany. That was a picture of Christ Jesus. Uh, the burning bush, that was a theophany, for example. Um, but as it pertains to Melchizedek, I would argue that the language that they would use, that they used there indicated that he was human. And there was no need to be concerned about his genealogy um, because the focus was on him as a picture of the coming Christ rather than him being Christ himself. Human. So you're at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.21, what, is it, what does it mean? Um, 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things... He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Uh, so what are some of the things that we need to cleanse ourselves from? If we just look in context, we look back a couple verses. Uh, I'll start in uh, verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle or to wrestle or to uh, cajole about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Here's what we need to avoid. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are these two guys who have done exactly that. Uh, so again, when we cleanse ourselves of worldly things, of wickedness, of, of talking like the world does, of interacting with people like the world does, um, of arguing about really fruitless, senseless, stupid things, and I can say stupid because it's a word in Proverbs, it's a biblical concept, uh, when, we, when we pull away from these things, were vessels fit for honor. If I want to use uh, contextually, uh, for example, the book of Romans, uh, we know that vessels of honor, ultimately those who are called by God, and we'll go back to their original usage, uh, a vessel of honor in a house would be used for uh, water to drink from or it would be used for wine uh, to pour from or to drink from. So those would be honorable vessels. Uh, on the opposite end of that spectrum, we had vessels that were dishonorable, usually made of, of clay or of wood or of some type of kind of disposable material. Uh, that's what you use the bathroom in. That's what you used, uh, that's what you put wastewater into. And so God's ultimately saying that you, you should desire to be one of these vessels that are used for honorable purposes, uh, that's end is honorable, that's evident that it's going to be used for something honorable rather than as something for wastewater or human excrement. And, you know, we, we see, uh, we see that, that theme throughout the New Testament as well. Um, you know, what good hello, test. What good is salt uh, if it has become tasteless? It's not good for uh, the garbage or the manure pile, right? So we have to be uh, salt and light of the earth, but also vessels who are honorable uh, that can be used for good things.